when he started rolling, I thought he was headed to the bottom and we would be, you know, going down to find a pile of hamburger. Join me, your host, Drew DeVries, as we embark on today's journey to combat the deficit. Today, I have Mark Rowenhorst, big game hunting guide and uh, storyteller from Interior Alaska. He's joining us from Fairbanks. Mark, welcome to the show. Um, really glad to have you and very eager to hear your story. Yeah, glad to be here, Drew. We found out we kind of had a few things in common growing up in somewhat similar um, communities and life situations, I guess. I grew up in Iowa, um, grew up with three other siblings, um, stayed stayed local there all through college and then as I as I got older kind of the mountains had always been calling so once I graduated college I I split for Montana the first place I could pick up any job in a Rocky Mountain state I was taking it Um, so off to Montana for a few years and then continued west and northwest and wound up in Alaska now pursuing a career as a professional hunting guide so so, Mark, tell us what uh, what you're going to share and give us, um, yeah, just give us a visual of, of the lay of the land, if you would. I'm going to share a story from a few years ago now. I was uh, working for another outfitter as an assistant guide, um, and I was going to have a packer with me on, on the hunt. Um, that's an extra hand, and then had a a client and somebody else actually from the Midwest, Northern Minnesota, who's a mink farmer from Northern Minnesota, about a 60 year old guy. And, uh, so we are going to get dropped off, um, for a 10 day hunt. It's a 10 day hunt, um, including fly days. So it's really eight or nine days on the ground, um, getting dropped off by bush plane in the back country of Alaska. So this takes place early August. Um, the doll sheep opener is the 10th, so we usually start a few days prior to that, trying to be kind of in position, hopefully finding a legal ram by the 10th. Yeah, so we got dropped off on the 7th, um, fairly late in the evening, so we didn't have a whole whole lot of time to mess around. and kind of found the first easy place next to the gravel bar where the super club was landing, um, just to set up camp for the night and we're going to have to wait for the hunter to get in the next day. Um, the next morning we had to load up on water. We didn't fly in a bunch of water. So I tried pumping water out of the river, but it was really silty and clogging up my filter real bad. So we went for a little hike to find some nice, fresh, clear water. And we were probably gone an hour to an hour and a half, uh, from camp. And we got back and the first thing I noticed was our tents were flat. Our tents were just flat. I didn't know what happened. It, it kind of seemed like, I wonder if somebody was camped down a half mile from us and came and pulling a prank on us or something like that. But as we got closer, I could see uh, uh, things were kind of tore up and shredded. And, and sure enough, it turned out that a bear had kind of ravaged our camp, tore some things up, and, and uh, made a mess of the place. 
there had been a lot of bear sign in that area. Um, but it was just kind of the easiest place sheltered in the trees to camp. Um, wasn't really concerned about it. And then during the night I had heard some things, sticks break and things like that. Um, but again, I've had that plenty of times. It's never, I never had an issue with bears in camp, but. Okay. So you guys are, uh, you guys come back to a shredded camp, then what? Well, so then it was basically, we had to quick evaluate, um, what we had yet, if everything was still there. Um, the bear didn't, didn't get into our food bag, didn't mess with food or anything like that. It was just showing us it was there. Um, so our main casualties that we really, really couldn't probably do the hunt without was our tents, um, were shredded and then like air pads, sleeping pads were, were the next biggest thing. Sleeping bags had a few tears, but they're repairable with duct tape. So, um, fortunately it was early enough in the morning we could get a hold of the outfitter, um, via satellite communication using a in-reach device. And so they were able to still send out new tents and sleeping pads with the hunter. Okay. So crisis averted. Uh, once your, uh, once your hunter got, uh, got into camp, what transpired? Um, so yeah, the hunter got in that late afternoon, um, had new gear for us. So we were good to go there, but we weren't heading anywhere, um, yet that evening. So we kind of resorted and packed pretty specifically for the eight to nine days we'd have on the mountain and really dialed in our food specifically for that. And then we were going to have kind of a stash of stuff that we would leave, um, by the airstrip there. So we repacked, spent somewhat of a, a little bit restless night, just knowing that bear had kind of been shown aggressive behavior, but had no issues. Did you let your, uh, did you let your client in on that? Yeah. Yeah. We let him know, um, all that. And he, he was, he's been around the block. He's been on a lot, quite a few hunts actually. Um, ironically, we had actually been in the same camp in 2014 together, um, just briefly, uh, which was bizarre. That was the first camp I worked in as a apprentice, a packer the year I moved to Alaska and, and he hunted there too. He was hunting sheep and moose, um, and he didn't get a sheep. So that's why he was coming back for sheep. But yeah, he was not worried about bears. Now the three of you are gearing up for a nine or 10 day push. Where, uh, where are you headed? Uh, we're basically going to just gain elevation. There's kind of a a broad ridge complex where we could camp and live up high and just run the ridges early season like this. The sheep are liable to, to be in high Alpine terrain. Um, especially with fair weather in the summer, you're going to find mature rams and kind of the, the nastier areas and North, North facing slopes, um, and some tight cliffy, uh, little bowls. So we're going to get up um, and camp on kind of the, the middle of this ridge complex where we could spend days going in different directions and coming in over the top and peeking in these tight high alpine bowls and just going from one to the next to the next um, off this ridge complex. We climbed the mountain then on the ninth, the day before opening day, and then on the 10th, um, 
the hunter had struggled carrying 60 pounds of gear up the mountain. Um, there was no doubt it was plenty challenging for him. So we were pretty hopeful for an early kill. Um, and there was, there was this section of, um, of the ridgeline to the northeast of us that the outfitter kind of recommended checking out first. He said, usually mature rams will hang out in this, this pocket of mountains. So started working our way that direction on the 10th. Um, we got weathered out for a few hours and popped up a tarp just to hang out under um, because there was low visibility. You don't want to go around bumping animals that you never got the chance to see um, because of low clouds, fog, and rain. So we we waited it out for a while. It cleared a little bit that afternoon, and we actually spotted a ram um, that was worth a closer look. And we had enough time to go close the close the distance on it and take a closer look. I think we got to about 300 yards and um, set up, you know, I carry a big spotting scope, like a 80 to 90 millimeter objective lens that, you know, goes into 60 power zoom um, to really study it. Cause they, um, doll sheep do have pretty strict regulations for what is legal. If you don't mind, just uh, quick, quick break that down. So they call it full curl regulations. Generally, um, sheep that are around the eight-year-old class will reach where their horns um, uh, go go around a f- entire 360 degrees of a circle. So under full curl regulations, there's there's kind of three main stipulations. If they're eight years old, judged by count counting annuli, that's the dark rings that develop um, during the winter, which that's not the recommended um, way. It's it's tough. There can be false annuli and things like that um, that throw you off, and, and it's pretty easy to, to get your count wrong. Obviously, something that's hard to count on the hoof in the field, um, but with some experience, it can be done. So eight years old, um, if one tip makes it that entire 360 degrees of a circle, um, that qualifies as legal, or if both horns are broken, where the lamb tips, basically the last couple inches of horn is broomed off or broken broken off, that's called double broomed, and that would be a legal ram. So this specific ram, um, he uh, was broke off on only one side, though, and then his other side that was tipped out was too close to call, um, so I called him short. Especially for the first day of the hunt. Hey, if you're heading out into the woods to chase after tom turkeys or morels or whatever you're going to be doing, um, don't do it without first treating your clothes with premium permethrin. Sawyer's made it simple. It's a spray-on product. You spray the stuff on, hang your clothes, let it dry, and you're good to go for 42 days or six washings. Tick-borne illness is something that's kind of starting to find its way into my social fabric. And it's, if you know anything about limes, it is not something that you want to mess with. Go online, check them out. Uh, Sawyer products on all your social handles or sawyer.com. Yeah, so back to camp, um, the end of that day. Um, And so we woke up on the 11th and right away from camp, Kind of on the, we plan to get further along that ridge line um, 
where that ram was, but there was a lot of bulls on the backside yet to check out that we we didn't get time on the 10th due to weather. So we were going to head that way. Um, early in the morning, though, from camp, I spotted a couple of hunters ahead of us uh, working their way down that ridge. So that was a, a little bit alarming, um, disappointing. But who knows, you know, it, it looked like it was hard to tell where they came up from. Um, but from what I could tell from the maps, there's a chance that they had bypassed one or two of the first bowls um, on the backside of this ridge I wanted to check out and they were, they kept going, moving away from us. So I still decided to head that direction um, despite there being competition um, already well ahead of us. So we continued that way and, and we ended up looking in the first bowl and it actually turned out there's a ram right there um, bedded on this rocky spire inside that bowl. And we were closer. It was a clear, super clear, um, high-pressure day. And we were looking at probably 170 yards or something, really nice and close. Um, so we got a lot of time to study this ram. And as it turned out, it, it appeared to be the same ram as the day before, which was interesting. It had moved quite a distance and closer to us, um, but got to look closer at it. Um, and it kind of confirmed what I thought the other day. Still, the one tip maybe, maybe made it a full curl, um, but I, it was too close to call. I didn't get the right angle, um, to make that call. And, and I was confident it was seven years old based on what I could tell. There's no way to make it eight and you don't want to make up rings that are not there. So, okay. So passed on two sheep now, maybe the same one, not entirely sure, but third day in two sheep spotted one grizzly bear, ruined camp and uh yeah you've got uh, you've got several days of yeah so at this point we were we sat and watched that ram for a while and just enjoyed the nice weather we were you know four or five thousand feet off the valley floor and it was just it was really really gorgeous day so we we sat up there um and we were we decided we still had time to cover um some ground on that ridge and we just said well why don't we just keep moving who knows maybe those other hunters miss something or uh, spook something without getting a shot. And who knows what could happen. But as we packed up our packs again and got ready to start moving, we heard the infamous gunshot um, from down the ridge. And so that was kind of like the, the kick in the pants. And uh, so it was like, well, they found they found the nice big mature ram for this area kind of no no point in wasting energy going forward we sat and thought about things for a while and just said well let's enjoy the weather for a little bit and i think you know 20 minutes later we were gonna start working our way back down towards camp um and i looked in the distance and saw sheep moving our direction swiftly so quick pulled up the binoculars it was rams, um, obviously spooked. So assuming either 
the hunter missed or more likely they shot a ram out of a group of a larger group of rams and the rest were moving our direction they were moving towards us so it was kind of like we had to be ready for anything um, depending which side of the ridge they took i was going to have my spotting scope ready whenever they stopped to take a close look try to judge a legal ram i had my packer with um, a rangefinder ready on the trigger to range a ram, and and the hunter was set up to shoot. Um, as they kept coming towards us and probably passed us within fifty or sixty yards, but they never stopped. I mean, they did not stop at all. But in in my mind's eye, I had this glimpse of one ram that tipped way up and would have been obviously legal had I just. I mean, in hindsight, I should not have been trying to look through my spotting scope. I could have looked with the naked eye, hope it was adequate, or binoculars. Um, but even, I mean, they never stopped for a shot anyways. Had we even decided there was a legal ram, they never stopped. All right, so do you, are you dejected at this point? After that happened, I was, because then it was kind of like, you know, that could be the only group, the only bachelor group of mature rams um, on this mountain complex. Yeah, so after that, we kind of headed back to camp with our tails between our legs, um, a little bit dejected, but but still hopeful there's still country to look at. From there, we can fast forward. The next four days was a lot of, a lot of hiking um, mixed with, uh, I think we did have a weather day in there um, where we just rested because of low visibility and and rain. We had one day left to hunt and and then the next day would be the day we'd have to make the hike back down to the airstrip and, and be prepared for pickup. The food that we had with us on the mountain um, was rationed pretty specifically for that. And we we're getting down to the wire. Um, of course, we had some stashed down at the airstrip. <clears throat> So this day, I mean, we were going to give it all we had, go as far as we could. So we kind of uh, kept the hunter. I mean, we made his pack as absolutely light as possible. He was basically just carrying his rifle and maybe an extra layer of clothes. And then, you know, we had all the, the extra gear and food and whatever else we needed. And um, throughout this day, we went as far as possible and we just weren't turning up any, anything new. And we're getting towards late afternoon and I decided, you know, we got, we can probably give it like another 20, 30 minutes, um, maybe cover another 300 yards here, see if it opens up anything new. Um, but after that, we got to start heading back to camp. This is a ridge we wanted to be traversing in the dark. Um, and the weather forecast that I got from the inReach was looking like there's going to be some wind and rain picking up that night. So within 10 minutes probably of making this decision, I had, I mean, I moved maybe 100 yards and looked down and down this finger ridge way below us, there was a ram. Um, took a quick look in the spotter and it was like, it looks um, like it really has potential to be legal. So we kind of backtracked 
um, a little bit to get on the back side of this finger ridge where we'd been, be concealed and start working our way down to it. And it was, I mean, it was a good 1,500, maybe 2,000 feet below us in elevation. I think we got to probably about 300 yards um, line of sight, but it was, we were looking at a steep downhill and it appeared to be a, a legal ram. You know, we might have our bottom of the ninth inning home run, home run right here. Isn't that weird? It just seems like that's, uh, that's every hunting story that that's worth its weight. It's always a bottom of the ninth type situation. Absolutely bizarre. Kind of funny, ironic, maybe, maybe just true. <laughs> so anyways, I, I said, well, I think one side looks really good. I think he's legal. Um, go ahead and pull the trigger. And, and, and we did. And, and, uh, the ram flopped over. Fortunately, didn't fall off his his big rocky ledge and roll to the bottom. Um, so high five and celebrating. Um, I think that's the first time I had a client kiss me, <laughs> kiss me on the cheek. He was, I mean, he was absolutely jazzed, um, and we all were. Um, it was. It had been a long, long, challenging hunt, and and just really happy for for the hunter to be able to take a ram home. So Hunter made a good shot? Yeah, made a good shot. And uh, we uh, started working our way down towards him. But occasionally there was these shale, like vertical shale rock shelves where you would uh, drop off three or four feet or something. So you'd kind of have to work around the, down around the side of it um, rather than straight over the top. But it was pretty loose footing, you know, anywhere from baseball softball size rocks to uh basketball size I and mean, i i had been recording a bunch with a handy cam and <clears throat> typically on if there's a good situation for it i like having being able to record my hunter um, walking up on the animal and let him be the the first to put his hands on it so we got down to where we were just like 20 yards away um from the ramp so i asked um and so he came around me, started working his way down, and and he came to one of those little shale lips. Instead of going around the side of it, he kind of w- was excited, went straight over the top, and um, he stumbled a little bit and couldn't get his feet back under him. But he started rolling. Um, <clears throat> he ended up um, falling off the side of this finger ridge, and it it continued basically at that pitch for around 400 vertical feet. When he started rolling, I thought he was headed to the bottom and we would be, you know, going down to find a pile of hamburger. Um, fortunately, he stopped. I don't know exactly what stopped him, but but he stopped probably in 30 feet. Um so certainly very, very relieved he stopped there. I was looking at the video camera, so I didn't really see um, exactly what happened initially. Packer said he he's watched his um, head, you know, bounce off the rocks and, and hit pretty hard. I got to the hunter there, and he had, you know, a massive gash in his forehead, um, a couple inches long and, and split wide open where I was looking at his skull basically 
I didn't know if there was like bone chips and fragments and stuff because there's, you know, sand and gravel all over the place on his face sticking to the blood and stuff. Um, but we got him cleaned up a little bit. And as far as we could tell, he didn't have, you know, any major, major fractures. And by the time we shuffled down to him, he was he was already sitting up. It seemed like at least... You know, if he did lose consciousness, it wasn't for very long, <clears throat> but he, he claimed that he was all right. He was lucid. He was talking to you. I mean, were you guys doing all the, the tests? Yeah. Yeah. We um, asked him to give us his birth date, all that sort of stuff, his name, his wife's name. Um, he seemed, yeah, he seemed to be doing good. And there, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty of adrenaline going on yeah so got him cleaned up a bit and at this point had to make a quick decision if he was going to be able to hike out of there or not um and if he was going to be okay so i basically concluded that he would not probably be able to do it on his own strength we had a big climb ahead of us plus um you know several hours of running a ridge line yeah, because, well, remind us. So you said when you put eyes on this ram, it was 2,000 feet below you. You've got a heck of a climb behind you just to get to the ridge line that you were glassing from. Yeah, yeah, basically, especially with packing out around 100 pounds total of sheep, meat, cape, and horns. So it was going to be, you know, significant output. And Knowing a head injury has the potential to bleed, it had bled quite a bit already. Um, I didn't know that we'd be able to control the bleeding with that type of output, um, and it just seemed too risky. So at this point, I decided I I should call for emergency. Um, <clears throat> so I discussed that with them, confirmed with my packer that that's what he thought was necessary too, and and. The hunter, however, was adamant he did not want to be flown out. I think there was, I'm sure it had plenty to do with, you know, just pride, feeling like, feeling maybe weak or soft for having something like that happen. He was embarrassed that he tripped the way he did. He, uh, and probably concerned about potential costs of emergency evac. You've got a lot scrambling through your mind. Yeah, but at this point, you know, priority totally shifts to overall safety, making sure everybody gets home alive and in the best shape that they can. So hit the SOS, um, and let's see, I hit the SOS at 4.32 p.m. They gave us an ETA of about 7 p.m., <coughs> Um, so during that time, we were still able to take some pictures, take care of the ram, um, all that sort of stuff. I had been in a situation actually the year before where our guide was the pilot and he tipped the plane over on takeoff while we were extracting. And uh, nobody was seriously injured, but they still um, got emergency medevac. And in that situation, um, the helicopter picked up everybody i wasn't even in the same camp i was in a different camp three miles away they picked up i think four guys from that camp and then they came over stopped and picked me up 
So in this situation, when I hit SOS, I was like, well, they're going to probably pull all of us out. The weather was getting worse. So I was kind of getting concerned whether they were actually going to be able to make it through the mountains to us. Um, visibility was dropping, wind picking up, um, and rain. But, you know, it was the visibility um, that was kind of the main visibility and wind. <clears throat> so you've got a handful of of input to to sift through um talk to me a little bit about what's going through your head knowing the weather was deteriorating first of all before the helicopter actually got there um and knowing they were already over an hour late i was just hoping they were going to be able to make it <clears throat> so that was a concern and then if they did if they potentially wouldn't make it what are we going to do um, and if they do make it late, then what is that going to look like? Um, if they, if they don't pick us all up, um, what does that look like for myself and the Packer in that situation? Knowing it's, you know, getting close to dark, weather's getting tough. Um, I'm just going to have to try to get out of there and back to our tents as soon as possible. We did grow impatient, especially after you know, we got past their, the ETA they gave us and we weren't getting updated ETAs. Um, as it turned out, you know, they were, they did have trouble navigating the weather, um, getting through certain passes through the mountains and they ended up having to refuel in the air and things like that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, ended up being about two hours late and there was nowhere to land by us. Um, it was a steep pitch the whole way, so they had a long line, um, a guy down, a, a para-jumper. As, you know, as they were clipping in, I, I held up his backpack and stuff. I was like, can you guys take this? And they're like, no, we can't take anything else. Low on fuel, weather, blah, blah, blah. We got to get out of here. And it was windy, rainy. It was wild. It was pretty a pretty wild scene um, and fairly dramatic, you know, as they, you know, they don't, the helicopter didn't just hover there while they reel him in. Like they, once he was clipped in and they gave him the go ahead, like they yanked him away from the mountain. Oh, really? Just not wanting to get a wind swirl or something. You know, their, their props weren't that far off the hillside being as steep as it was. Yeah, that makes sense. So they actually drug him out to altitude in order to, to kind of, create a safe buffer. Yeah. Which is probably a little bit unnerving. I mean, if he were to be facing down, he would have shat his pants. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. So then as, as they pulled him away, we had, you know, these super conflicting feelings too, of <clears throat> being really relieved that he was done and out of it and he was going to be okay. But at the same time, then, then there was a super daunting feeling of, what we had laying ahead of us tough weather we have an extra backpack now to deal with a f full ram we're long long ways from camp and and it's getting dark for any listeners with a motorcycle endorsement jj lewis from the good adventure company and i are teaming up to do a 600 mile full week loop 
in the state of Colorado. It's going to be awesome conversations, awesome camaraderie. We're going to be camping under the stars. The route is set. The dates are set. August 5th through 12th, we're taking off out of Denver. Spots for eight, and uh, hope it's one of you. Check it out, adventuredeficit.com for more. At this point, you've got 60 pounds of your hunter's bag to navigate through and an extra 100 pounds of dead dead ram. Yeah, well, the hunter's bag isn't that full yet. You know, his it was just day packs. So fortunately, at this time, we just had day packs. But um, even with that, we probably had maybe we were averaging 80 pounds each um, trying to climb up out of there. Man, that's not, that's not easy. And I mean, usually we're used to fairly heavy loads, like 80 pounds really isn't, that's not extreme by any means. Um, but given the situation, our legs were so tired by, by being nine or 10 days in. And um, so we tried taking everything and climbing up out of there, but the between that weight super tired legs and um pretty crummy loose footing we really struggled so we decided we had to ditch a bunch of the meat there and the ram and just get back to the tents lighter and come back for the rest of it the next day so that's what we did um we made that long hike that night in uh a lot of wind and rain, running the knife ridges back to camp, dove in our tent, um, ate a little bit of food, and crashed out for a few hours. Man, you guys are, you guys are tough. Um, so the next morning, after getting a few hours of sleep, we had some oatmeal, and and then we had to backtrack to recover the rest of the sheep. Um, that was. A surprisingly cold day. We had ice, kind of a sheet of ice on the outside of the tent, and um, frost a lot of places. So we a relatively cold day, but other than that, it was dry and all went well. So we went and recovered the rest of the sheep, got it back to the tents, and then from there we had to kind of repack all of our gear, tent, um, hunter's gear, his pack, the sheep, all of that stuff. You guys are done with uphill at this point? Well, we're done moving uphill, I guess I should say. Um, we had three packs for the two of us. So that meant that there was, I mean, there was no way of splitting it into two packs. It wouldn't have been carryable so yeah at that point we had um three reasonably heavy packs for the two of us um and basically you know we only had to go downhill and it was mm, 2,500 or 3,000 vertical feet or so um back to the gravel bar where the airstrip was at and so we decided basically to leapfrog those three packs between the two of us, which basically meant we'd hike for a while. One of us would stop, drop a pack, go back for the hunter's pack, and then go carry that, you know, beyond the next guy. And we'd just keep leapfrogging them down 
So you're still you're still covering all kinds of vert. Yeah, so we basically you end up going down the mountain twice and up the mountain once and that doing that um scenario. Um and this time at this point we're we're basically out of food. We'd finished off our snacks. I think we had maybe one granola bar we were saving. Um, but we had a stash of food in our extra gear, um, down by the airstrip that we left hanging in the tree. <clears throat> so we were, we were looking forward to that. Um, we made it to the bottom pretty late that day, um, just after dark. And we were super, super relieved. Yeah. You're fixing to kiss the ground at this point. Right, right. So we covered, you know, the extra 200 yards to uh, where we had camped and where gear stash was. Um, you know, we have headlamps at this point. It was dark. Um, climbed in the trees and we realized our nightmare was not over. Oh, no. Um, <clears throat> we found the area that we had camped was covered in, in this new super thick oozy mud um like there had been a slight landslide or a creek had flooded and changed course or something like that <clears throat> but the air was area was flooded and then got to the tree that we had our our stuff hanging in and found that a bear had um gotten into it no scattered our gear our extra clothes all over the place and they the bear had done that before um, this mudslide happened. So, so all our stuff was scattered everywhere and, uh, torn up and, um, and then it got flooded with mud. So a lot of it was, we could see bits and pieces sticking out of the mud here and there. And at this point, this base camp is home. Like this is, this is what you're fighting to reach because it means rest for a minute and some shelter and some food and you can regroup, but everything's shredded. Yeah. So it was, it was kind of just one more kick while you're down, salt in the wounds type of thing. Um, so at this point, I mean, we were hungry and our bodies were, were absolutely shot. We we're kind of dealing with a, a higher degree of fatigue than I don't think I've ever dealt with before or since. And and we have no food. <clears throat> um, so at that point, just completely exhausted, we we just quick set up one tent out in the gravel bar in the blowing blowing sand because we can't camp in the trees in our nice flat spot because it was all muddy. Um, and just went to sleep on an empty stomach, not knowing what the next day was going to look like. Were you as close as uh, you've been to survival at that time? Um, probably. Yeah, I would say that's probably true. We were as close to a um, survival situation as I ever have been. <clears throat> um, that being said, I wouldn't truly call it a survival situation knowing that we did have – we had uh, – shelter and we did have all that sheep meat so we did have food technically available just not um the easy uh comfort food that we're looking forward to <laughs> yeah i guess i didn't even think about that but yeah you've got a whole animal 
you know, we should have probably stopped and made some meat right away. But thinking we were going to get picked up, I wanted to dig through that mud and salvage whatever I could because I was set to be out there for three hunts, potentially like 40 days. So I had kind of a an extra stash of gear. And we also, we got notice from the outfitter to make sure that we found the, the hunter's uh, wallet. He had, he had stashed his wallet in that bag. The hunter's wallet we did find intact and it was kind of double or triple bagged. <clears throat> so it was in good shape. I think it was a little wet, but it didn't succumb to all that silty mud. You know, I had extra batteries, power packs, solar panels, extra, you know, toiletries, shavers, clothes, extra ammo, um, a rangefinder, a tripod, fuel cans, things like that. Some of it was salvageable once we got it cleaned up. Um, but certainly a lot of it was either destroyed by the bear, lost completely under the mud, or or destroyed by mud. So we kind of had to sort through stuff and try to get stuff cleaned up in the river and then dried out and then kind of be ready for whenever a plane might potentially show up. We were super, super relieved to be at the bottom. Um, you know, at this point, it was done. Our, our nightmare, our, you know, massive challenge was over. Wow. Okay. Man, Alaska is ruthless. Mark, if you had to pull out a life lesson, what would you say it was? What, how, do, how do you even narrow something down with all of that going on? The main thing that, that stuck out to me in this was the importance of community and just having other people um, around us to weather life storms with. You know, my packer and I, we didn't know each other at all before this trip, and he didn't have much experience in mountain hunting or backpacking or Alaska or anything like that. He had a lot of hunting experience, but not, not mountain style hunting or backpacking. So it wasn't like, you know, he didn't have all the right answers or um, a whole lot to give, I guess, in those situations. I still had to make all the decisions. Um, but just having another guy there to bounce ideas off of or discuss options or just kind of distract you from from some of the difficulty that was absolutely crucial um so without that you know i may have broke down and quit or at the least it would have taken several more days um but you know i think we both acknowledged had we been there alone it we might have, you know, totally mentally, emotionally broke down. Wow, that's cool. That's pretty rare too. I think just by nature, most uh, most would agree that you know the hunting guide, the big game hunting guide, is a is a man's man, a tough guy. Um, to hear you turn toward a rookie hunter and say, or at least a rookie, uh, you know, a rookie mountain guide. And uh, posture yourself in such a way where you're saying, I needed him. Um, and, and to look at the bigger picture and say, no, you know, humanity needs each other. We need community. I think that's, that's re- really good insight. I like that. There's a, uh, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes um, that says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. 
And I think that's what it's getting at. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's something that should be applied to everyday life. Um, you know, a friend doesn't have to have all the right answers, but just being part of community can be a total, total difference maker um, in weathering some of life's storms. Wow. What else? Um, one of the other things that that came to mind as a somewhat of a life lesson is just, you know, there's times when you can be really anxious about certain situations, certain scenarios, <clears throat> perhaps, you know, in regards to your own life. But being able to acknowledge the sovereignty of of our creator, that he has everything in the palm of his hand and he knows the outcome of any given situation. I think that frees you up really to just, to just live life well and fully and release a lot of those potential fears or anxieties. We didn't talk about this on the front end, but you and I uh, acknowledge this on our phone call that we're both fathers and we're both husbands and we hold those roles with high regard and we take those those jobs incredibly seriously and to head out into situations where um most most don't um due to the the dangers involved um requires you to have sh- strength beyond yourself um yeah, elaborate on on that a little bit. You had mentioned it when we talked before um, as well, and it resonated with me, um, something I feel often when I'm fixing to leave for a trip or um, a series of hunts. You wonder if you're doing the responsible thing as a father or husband, knowing that it's... It's something that fills and rejuvenates my soul, brings me closer to the Lord. Um, I know that I can come back recharged and and re-energized to be the best husband and father I can and also know that the Lord is sovereign to watch over them while I'm gone. Yeah. Some tremendous stuff in there. Uh Thank you for what you do. Thanks for caring for people well. And uh, yeah, again, thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, certainly. It was nice being on with Drew, and it's been nice to get to know you a little bit. And and I appreciate what you do as well, bringing some pretty cool stories um, along with um, great perspectives um, from those stories to uh, the public square. Thanks, man. I really appreciate you saying that. If uh, If somebody is curious and they want to get linked up, how do they go about finding you? Um, so limitless Alaska guiding is my business name. Um, eventually there will be a website, but for now, Facebook and Instagram is where you can find me. That's probably the best place to start. Otherwise email drew and he can forward you my information. Mark. Thanks again. Appreciate it, man. You bet. Thanks, Drew.